Well, again, I'm delighted to be with you. If you have your Bibles, we will be in Ruth, you guessed it, chapter 4. Kind of going to bring this to a close, and Ruth, it's been, it's been good. It's, it's, it's a picture, if, if you can see it, it's a picture of our life. It's a picture of the gospel, and it's, it's a story. It's, it's, it, it's a glimpse of hope, and hope carries us from next phase of life to the next. And the book of Ruth is, is, is like one of those signs that you see in, in the road, you know, stuff, um, whether it's you've been on a long road or not, the, that hope that your destination is just up ahead. And it's, Ruth is a glimpse of hope for us to keep going. It's, it's, uh, it was written to help us to see that everything that we do in our ordinary life uh, can be connected to something eternal. It was written, it's been preached to, to give us encouragement and to hope um, that regardless of the setbacks that we see in our life, that there's, there's hope. There's, it's, it's not over that our, our life isn't just going down a dead-end street, that in Christ that we do have hope. In chapter 3, where we left off last week, Naomi urges Ruth uh, to make this mysterious um, midnight rendezvous with Boaz. And basically she uh, goes to Boaz and, and says this, says that I want you to spread your wings over me as my husband. This, we have this scene, this picture of some incredible uh, moment of integrity and self-control, but we also see this marriage proposal and Ruth, uh, Boaz, however, uh, doesn't necessarily have the right to marry Ruth in this moment. There's somebody else who uh, is in line to take care of her debt from her uh, late husband. And so at the end of chapter 3, we, we get ended with some suspense. And Boaz kind of pumps the brakes and was like, look, I want to. As the Lord lives, I want to redeem you and to take care of your debt. I want to marry you, but there's somebody else, and I don't have the right. So we get to chapter 4, and Boaz finds out who this guy is. There's somebody who is closer in line because of their custom. And uh, just to refresh you, in those days, if you had some debt, uh, your property was deeded out to someone who could pay off your debt for you. And if you couldn't pay, you could... Uh, you could buy it back it, whenever you wanted if you could pay. But if you couldn't, uh, it was a custom that someone in your family could pay it back for you. It was called a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer had to have three things. First, they had to have the right to do so. They had to be the next living relative to pay off their debt for you. They had to have the resources. Of course, if they couldn't pay, obviously they couldn't redeem your debt. And then third, they had have the resolve. They had to want to do it. They didn't have to, but they had to be willing to do that. And Boaz, we see at the end of chapter 3 that he, he wants to. He has the resolve. He wants to do this for Ruth. He wants to marry her. He has the resources. He's a wealthy man. He wants to be able to do this, but he doesn't have the right. And so that's where we leave off in chapter 4. And we're going to start in verse 1, if you'll just follow along with me, and we'll walk through this together. And one of the things I want to do today is as we read some of the, this passage in chapter 4, but also to kind of zoom out and look at some underlying principles of the whole story. 
So chapter 4, verse 1, says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took then ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of of those sitting around here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me, that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. So we'll pause there. And one, one of the things I want to point out is that this other relative who is in line to take care of the situation for Ruth is never really given a name. And I think maybe it's probably because of the lack of generosity we're going to see on his part. But Boaz kind of explains to him the situation. He says, look, we've got some land. You're the next person in line. You can do it if you want it. And he's like, sure. You know, there's not, they, they're not making any more land. Um, I'm, I'm going to give me some, some free land, or not some free land, but I'm going to give me some land out of this and, and be well off. Well, that's not the whole story. We look at verse 5 that Boaz continues in, to explain the situation. Verse 5, he says, the, uh, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also will acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So he's like, look, you're going to buy this house, you're going to buy this land, it's going to come with some people. It's going to come with Ruth, it's going to come with her uh, irritable, uh, bitter mother-in-law. We see her her attitude throughout the whole situation in chapters 1 and 2. Um, it's it's going to come at a cost. And basically, we we don't have a name, but we this Redeemer drops it. He says at first, he's like, yeah, I'll do it. I'll, I'll take the land but it but then he he drops it you know he doesn't he doesn't drag it out doesn't give him some lame excuse he just drops it and got a couple dad jokes here you know uh you know your name's boaz you know i think it's kirk cameron because you're about to be left behind some bad breakup lines right there for you um thank you john chris boaz is like you know why don't you take this land why don't you take mary and this, this guy's like, you can call me Matt Redmond because I got 10,000 reasons. All right? It's a good song. It's all right. Um, I got some more, but I'll, I'll spare you. So basically, in verse 6, he drops it and says, he says this, The Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. At first, he says, yeah, I'll do it. But then he's like, he gets, gets a little greedy. He says, look, that's going to mess up my own inheritance, so you better do it. You, you, I want to pass this right to you. And so we see the rest of the story. The Boaz marries Ruth. He marries her. They, they live happily ever after. And um, this is awesome. This is a great story of redemption and uh, just a great love story. But that's not even the best part of the story. All right, we get to the end of the chapter 4, and we see this picture of Naomi who had lost everything. She came back empty, that she says in chapter 1, and she holds her grandson, Obed. And it, it's an awesome picture there. And that's not even the best part of the story. Look at the 
Look at verse 17 with me. It says, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse. It's incredible right here. Jesse, he has a bunch of sons. And years go by, um, after this story in Ruth, Jesse has a bunch of sons, and, and God speaks to the prophet, the prophet Samuel, and says that I'm about to do something new. I'm about to have a new era of things that's going to have some incredible ramifications for thousands of years. Even the people in Tupelo are going to see the effects of this. And so he tells uh, the prophet Samuel, he says, look, go find a king. So remember, Ruth is in the time period of the judges, and there was no king um, because of uh, Israelites' uh, selfishness and their own wants. They, they cried out to the Lord. They said, Lord, we want a king just like everybody else. We want somebody to rule and reign over us. They were uh, dissatisfied with the Lord being their king, and the Lord was like, all right. So he sends Saul to be the first king. Through sin, uh, the, the Spirit of God uh, left Saul. And so here we're left with God going to Samuel and said, hey, I want you to go find me a king. Samuel says, where do I go? Where do I go find this person? He says, go to the house of Jesse. It's his son. So he goes to Jesse, and Jesse's, he doesn't care which son it is. He's just incru- he just loves the thought of the fact that one of his sons is going to be the next king. All right? So he brings them out. They're lined up. And then Samuel looks at them and is like, no, nah, he's not it. He goes to the next one. He's like, no, you're not it. No, no, no. He goes to Jesse and was like, look, is, am, I, am, I at the, am I at the right place? Is, do you have another son? And Jesse's like, yep. He's, he's just a little kid, though. He's out in the field. And Samuel says, look, bring him here. I'm not going to sit down until he comes. And, you know, history, the rest is history, um, it's David. He becomes a king. Years after that, uh, the Lord continues to, to bless him. And he becomes this incredible king that we, that we read and that we know about. Uh, David has a son, Solomon. Solomon has a son who has a son who has a son. And about 20-something pregnancies later, we have Jesus. Jesus, the son of David, the son of Ruth, who was born in the city of Bethlehem, the city of Naomi. And is the redeemer for anyone who humbles themselves and takes refuge in him. Jesus is our redeemer. Jesus had the right. He had the resources. He had the resolve. He had the right. He was born from a woman just like all of us. He had the resources. He lived a sinless life. The fullness of God dwelt in him. He, he, he was able to, to conquer sin and death. He had the resources, and he had the resolve. He wanted to. He willingly laid down his life to redeem us, to, to bring inheritance to us. And so we look at the story, and it's coming to a close. But one thing I want to do is to share a few things that we see of the story as a whole through these four chapters. And the first thing, one thing that I want to point out is that we see in this story is that Jesus is in the business of redemption. We see this all throughout the story. Jesus is in the business of redemption. The word redemption is used 23 times in these four short chapters. It's a picture where the unloved are loved, the poor are restored, the 
inheritance that has been lost through sin has been reclaimed. We see bitterness in Naomi has become sweet. Naomi goes from empty in chapter 1 to full in chapter 4. And can you see the implications that it has for our life? So we look at the world, and the world starts with life and ends in death. But for the believer, for us, we understand that we were born in sin. We were born dead in our sins, but because of Christ in us, we will have life through him. The book of Ruth, I don't know if you've realized this, but the book of Ruth starts with death. It starts with death. There's an agricultural death. There's a famine. Uh, Naomi loses her husband through death. She loses her two sons. They both die, but it ends, the book of Ruth ends with the genealogy. This is the opposite of what happens in the world. The world is born, but then ends in death. But we see here's a glimpse of hope even from how the structure of Ruth is written, starts with death, ends with a genealogy of Naomi holding her grandson. Forsaken, sonless, husbandless beggar ends up becoming a grandmother of the Son of God. It's incredible. So, you know, the gospel, it's, it's, it's come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and, and milk without money and without price. That's the essence of the gospel, that we were created to be children of God, to, to spend eternity with him, without separation, to experience blessing upon blessing, to experience joy upon joy. But we, we've sold it away through sin. And so Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, loved us as unlovingly as, and sinful as we were. He loved us, laid us down, down his life, and, and paid our debt for us, something that we couldn't do for, our, for ourselves. And for you, you can be redeemed. I don't know if you have a relationship with the Lord or not, but you can be redeemed. I don't know if you're experiencing some famine in your life as a result of sin. I don't know if the relationships in your life are broken. I don't know if the career that you have is not where God has, or, or it's not where you have dreamed you would be. And, and God's not telling you to go fix your life so he can bless you and so he can love you. The gospel is that you come to Jesus as you are, and he will restore and redeem you. Look in verse 14. It says, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. I don't know if you remember back in chapter 1, uh, Naomi and Ruth, they get back to Bethlehem, and the people start talking, and they see them, and they're like, is, is, this, is this Naomi? And Na Naomi hears it and says, look, don't call me that. Naomi means pleasant. Call me Mar because I'm bitter. The Lord has dealt very bitterly with me, and he's left me empty. And some of the same people who approached her then come to her in chapter 4 and, and say, look, Naomi, do you see it? 
Do you see what's in your hand? Do you see what you're holding on to? The Lord hasn't left you. The Lord hasn't forsaken you. He's been there all along. And, and part of the things that we've got to understand is that in the midst of our setbacks, in the midst, even though the road may be long, that the Lord is still plotting for our glory, even though we can't see it. And that's what Ruth does and gives us that hope for us to look for. Another thing I want to point out is that in this story that we can see that you and I, we can be used for God's glory. A lot of times we, we see all these people in the Bible and these characters in Scripture and then some godly and, uh, men and women that we gets, get broadcast all over the world and we see the, the, the fame in that and we see, look, I can never do something that great. But in this passage, we see that we can be used for God's glory because it was in the moments of this tragedy that they were faithful. Just in the everyday thing, every, everyday life, they were faithful. And God was able to use them for his glory. In verse 15, his women were talking to Naomi about Ruth. And it, they said, for your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons. I just want to point something out right here. A son in their custom was an ultimate blessing. It was somebody, having a son was somebody who could uh, provide. It was somebody who could carry on the family name. So it was somebody who, uh, when they had a son, they felt ultimately blessed. But then they said to Naomi that this is like having seven sons. The number seven is the number of completion. We see that God created the world and, and everything in it in six days. On the seventh day, he rested. So we, we see how the coordination of who God is. Number seven uh, is the number of completion. And so in this context, it's, it's as if God was saying, Ruth, because of your faithfulness, you are more valuable than an infinity amount of blessing. There wasn't anything really special about Ruth. She, she didn't have any special gifts or talents or abilities that we know of. But we do read about her faithfulness. We read about her humility. And that's, that's all, all it takes for God to use someone. You know, we, we can have talents and abilities and gifts, and I think it's incredible. But what good is that if we don't make ourselves available to be used by God? And, and that's what Ruth did. She clung to Naomi, she made herself available. He humbled herself to the point of a servant. And God used her. In, in 1 Peter, Peter urges the church to, um, to use your gifts, to serve and show other people the grace that God has shown you. And he says, when you do it, when you speak, speak as uh, you're speaking the words of God. When you serve, serve in the strength of the Lord. It doesn't matter how great and you are in speaking. I'm, <laughs> I'm a testament to that. I'm not just this great communicator. But it's not about how well you speak as it is when you speak when God calls you to speak. It's not about some great gift or ability unless uh, you use it when God calls you to use it. It's not about how strong you are. It's about using the strength the Lord provides in that moment. And look, most people in Scripture aren't just incredible, gifted people. 
We see this time and time again, just different people that God uses for his glory just because of their willingness, their availability to, to use their life for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the Lord. And this just all points to the fact that Jesus himself didn't come as this mighty warrior, but he came humble and meek and, and as a servant, just like Ruth did, just like David David, we, we seem to think that he's, he's the LeBron James of the Old Testament, but you've got to remember he was overlooked, all right? If, unless you follow the NBA at all, can anybody else name anybody else who was on his team? All right, so that, that, that's David. He's not, he's not this big, huge, powerful guy. Of course, he did some great things, but he was initially overlooked, and sometimes we, we make things out bigger than they actually are. And then when it comes to ourselves, we bind to this lie that God's only going to use some future version of me. That only if, I, if only I could be this person that God could, could use me. But we've got to understand, we've just got to be faithful and let God use us. We see this in Ruth, certainly. And the third thing is that those who experience the gospel become a conduit for the gospel. That when the gospel comes to you, it doesn't just stop with you, but it actually goes through you and reaches other people through the love that God has put on our life. Ruth was, was an immigrant. She, she moved with Naomi to a land that she didn't know. People that, uh, customs that w- weren't... Um, familiar with her and who is who is the refugee who is the immigrant is it somebody is it is it a problem that has to be dealt with or is it a person that God has never stopped loving is it is it a person who's made in the image of God that Jesus died to save and look I realize that the government has its own questions to answer when it comes to this issue but when they show up on our block I know what our job is. I know what the church has been called to do, and it's to love. Look, the the question uh, about legal or illegal gets thrown out of the window at this point because it's not our job. It's our job to to love other people in Jesus. Look, just don't take it from me. Take it from Christ. Jesus has a pretty lengthy conversation about who just who is our neighbor. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up Jesus because... Our Lord Jesus Christ himself was an immigrant. He was a refugee, fleeing, like many people in our our country right now, they're fleeing a a brutal political situation. Jesus, his parents sojourned from their home to Egypt for years because they were out to kill him. He left his early childhood years. His family lived their early childhood years in a place that they didn't know, customs they weren't familiar with, a language they didn't speak. Sometimes we forget that the, the God we served experienced that. The, the, the girl who's had an abortion, who is, who is that girl? Is, it, is, is, she, is she somebody that we hold up and, and tell our, our, our young girls and our daughters somebody not to be like? Or is she somebody made in the image of God that Jesus died to save? The orphan, the widow, who is he? Who is she? Are they just 
a, a drain on society? Are they just, uh, you know, they're in the system. There's no real hope for him. No, those who have been redeemed by Jesus ought to become a conduit for Jesus to redeem. It's, it's not our job to, to go around and, 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 and cast judgment and rules, but it's to, to love them, to show them the gospel that we've received ourselves. Where would we be outside of the grace of God? And who are we to say that, you know, these people don't deserve that? It's horrifying to hear those who identify with the, the gospel turn just a blind eye, a deaf ear, with, with a mean disdain towards the, the poor, the broken, the, the refugee, and yet at the same time they will amen when the Great Commission is quoted. Look, you can't sing oceans and have hate toward a group of people. You can't, I know we haven't done that song in a while, but you can't sing that song. Just look it up, look up the lyrics. You can't sing that song if you hate, have hate in your heart towards brother and sister in Christ. Don Carson, he wrote this. It's, it's a little lengthy, but man, it's heavy. It says, we're so busy being angry all the time that at the end of the day, not only do we lose credibility, we have no energy or compassion left to evangelize. When you're busy hating people, denouncing everybody, seeking political solutions to everything, it's very difficult to evangelize. It's hard to be compassionate, to look on people, crowds, as though they're sheep without a shepherd, the way Jesus looks at us. It's very hard to love them when all we see is them taking away our heritage. Yet at the same time, because it's a democracy and there are things we ought to be doing to draw the line here or there, even if you understand that the laws don't finally engender justice, they might preserve them for a while, but finally, we, we understand that, you know, these laws are broken and they have to be changed, but there are things we ought to be doing. There are faithful things we ought to be doing, but at the end, end of the day, if you can't do those things with compassion, gentleness, and leave the doors open for evangelism, look, you just, you just destroy everything. And I think one of the devil's tactics for the church is to get us to hate people, whether or not we would, we would uh, agree with that or not. I think uh, his tactic is to get us to hate people. So at the end of the day, they can't be believed by anyone, not even in the proclamation of the gospel. So the call of the believer is, is, as we've received the gospel, as we have been loved by God, that we extend that love to our neighbors, whoever that is, whoever the Lord brings to our block. And a lot of times, it happens in just small steps of obedience that's played out in our everyday life. You know, we can go on mission trips and do some great things, but a lot of times the, the love that God has called us to is played out in just our everyday routine of life. And the book of Ruth teaches us that God's purpose for our life, for his people, is to connect just the, every, the things we do every day, connect them to the great things that God does through his people. It's, it's a connection between the ordinary life of events the connection between that and just the incredible and stunning works of Jesus that he does in and through people. 
these small steps of faith, the, the small displays of integrity, the serving a widowed mother-in-law, gleaning in a field, the following in love, having a baby. We see that all of these small everyday details are connected to an eternal glory because we know that in Ruth, that that was connected to directly the birth of Christ. And so we see that they're a part of something much bigger than what they seem, that the small things in our life are connected to bigger things bigger than it seems. Sometimes we hope in our life that our life could be just a straight, simple, smooth path to glory. And I wish that were true, but a lot of times it's, it's filled with back roads, back roads that are bumpy and curvy, make you go backwards in order to get forward. A lot of times um, we, we wish it was a lot smoother than that. Our, our life just isn't a, a straight shot to glory. There's, there's setbacks in our life. You know, I remember growing up, we would take uh, family vacations, we would take road trips. Uh, when I was really young, I lived in South Mississippi, and my grandparents were in Memphis, and they would drive down, stay a little while during the summer, and then drive us up, and we would spend a week or two with my grandparents just to get out of the house to have fun or do something, I don't know. But these rides, they, for, for us, it was a six-hour drive, and it just seemed the longest day of our lives, all right? It was, it was awful. But then, somewhere in the middle of nowhere, out comes this, it was the greatest thing ever. We would come up, uh, it seems like it was just the middle of nowhere, and there are people on the side of the road, all right? I don't know if you've experienced this or not. It was, it was awesome. They had, they had pies. They had watermelons. They had peaches. They had tomatoes, just random stuff, all right? And you're thinking, man, we're out in the middle of nowhere. Where did they come from, all right? But we would pull over, get something, and get back on thought it was amazing because this road, road trip so far was terrible, all right? But then there were other things. We would see signs that say, you know, 100 miles to the, the world's biggest yogurt cup. I don't know. You know. 50 miles, another sign, 50 miles to the world's biggest yogurt cup. You know, 30 miles, 10 miles, one mile. And by the time you get there, you just had to stop and check it out because you, there was a big fuss about it. You had to chop stop and experience it for yourself. I don't know if you've ever seen those kind of signs. Maybe they're, they don't exist anymore. Um, but it, it was awesome. And what we had on this long road was this glimpse that something's better coming up. And I think this is what Ruth does for us. Even if it's just jelly on the side of the road, what, what seemed like this boring, painful ride going through the alphabet game, you know, a hundred times. All right, singing show tunes. You know, my family was a little oversaved. We sang hymns, all right? It was rough because Aaron didn't start singing until he was in college. We had no idea he could sing that well. And so, you know, just it was just my mom and dad up front. What a mighty God. We used to, kids in the back, we serve. I don't know. It was rough. But what you see, what, was, what made it good, it was just this glimpse that, you know, something was better that was about to come. And that's what we see in Ruth, that even in the midst of this tragedy, this famine, tragic death of her husband, her two sons, that we see the mercies of God unfold and that there's hope for us. 
In the life of the believer, it's not a straight path to glory, but God sees that we get there. And that's the incredible promise, that it's going to be filled with setbacks. It's going to be filled with tragic, and it's the, the road's going to be long. But he's going to see that we get there. So we've got to be faithful in just these small, mundane, everyday routine. What we see here in the Old Testament story of Ruth, and it points us to David. It gets to the very end of this chapter, and we see that Ruth, Boaz, they have a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. Jesse has a son named David. David is this glimpse of a picture of a king that will come and rule and reign. His name is Jesus. Gives us hope that regardless of what's going on, in our life, even though we can't see it, that God is still working. He's still plotting for our glory. And this is the unshakable truth about the life of, of this woman, this man who followed Christ in the obedience of their faith. So I just want to ask a couple questions, and we're going to pray and, and close. Can you see God moving in the small areas of your life? Can you see it? A lot of times we can't because of so much other stuff going around us. But can you begin to kind of look back and see, all right, this was, this was God moving us over here. It was painful, but it was, he was setting us up for something incredible. And how, second question, how can you leverage your everyday routine for the glory of God? Ruth, just on this journey, committed to her mother-in-law, gleaning in the fields, just trying to find some food, put some food on the table. But in the midst of her faithfulness, she was a part of some incredible story that God honored and blessed. He could do that in our life. How can we leverage our everyday routine for his glory to extend love to our brothers and sisters, to extend love to those who are lost right down the street? Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that we have this incredible story of a woman, Lord, who was faithful, who allowed you to use her for your glory. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would help us to see that everything in our life, Lord, it's not meaningless. The setbacks, the 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 curves in our in the road, Lord. It, whether it's big or small, Lord, this, these are opportunities, Lord, to be used in such a mighty way for your glory. Lord, give us strength to, to stay on the course. Lord, give us strength to, to be faithful so that when we get to the other side of the setback or the struggle, this, the famine in our life, that we can say, Lord, you are good. We ask this in your name I pray. Amen.